Hello, welcome to Dungeon Delving. I am Brendan Wagner, and today I am continuing and finishing up my series of episodes on the classes with the wizard. Uh, now, the wizard is kind of like the meat and potatoes spellcaster. There's not a lot of extra stuff going on with the wizard. The wizard just casts spells and is really damn good at it. What makes the wizard unique compared to the other classes is how they go about knowing and preparing spells. Most uh, casting classes have either a set number of spells that they know from their class list, and they always have those spells prepared. Or they know their entire class spell list and can prepare a set amount per day. And that's usually based on... Um, well, it's always based on their uh, spellcasting ability modifier and their class level. The wizard kind of gets both. So what a wizard does is a wizard has a spell book that they record spells in, and they start with six spells, and then they have a set number of cantrips that they know. And they... Every time you level up, you add spells to your spell book. Um... You, let's see if I can find exactly the, yeah, you start with six first level spells, and whenever you level up, you can add spells to that spell book for free. But if you find information on a spell, a scroll, another caster's spell book, something like that, you can copy spells you don't know into the spell book. It costs 50 gold pieces and takes two hours per uh, level of the spell. So a second level spell would cost 100 gold and take four hours. But you can do it. You can learn essentially the entire wizard spell list. Um, with those ones for free, I did the math earlier, but I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was 40-something spells, but the wizard has the biggest spell list, so that's a drop in the bucket of the wizard spell list. And so the wizard, then, when you after you finish a long rest, you can prepare a number of spells from your spell book. Uh, intelligence modifier plus wizard level. Um... And honestly, I would say that personally, as a DM, I would house rule that a wizard can cast spells they don't have prepared by going into their spellbook and doing it. it. I would increase the casting time, but I would say that you could totally do it. A wizard could absolutely pull out their spellbook, look for a spell they don't have prepared for the day, and still cast it. Um... The wizard, because of this, is... What's the word I'm looking for? The most versatile caster in many ways. Because you can learn your entire spell list, and you can do almost anything. Um, now, the wizard uh, subclasses 
are based on the different schools of magic. There are eight schools of magic. Abjuration, Conjuration, Divination, Enchantment, Evocation, Illusion, Necromancy, and Transmutation. And I'm not going to dig into the schools themselves in this episode. I'll talk a little bit about them, but I'm not going to really dig into them. Um, I might later in a future episode. But uh, seven of, or eight of the nine wizard archetypes are based on each of those schools. Uh, the ninth being war magic introduced in Xanathar's Guide. Now, the wizard, basically you choose a school of magic and that's what you focus your study on, but that does not limit you to that school. You're not, if you choose the school of abjuration, you can still cast enchantments, conjuration spells, transmutation spells. You can still use all those spells and there's no penalty to doing it. You've just chosen that that school of magic is your, like your major, basically. Because wizards are students of magic, whereas warlocks, clerics, druids, bards, they aren't, they don't study magic. They, they wield it. They're empowered by it, but they don't study magic itself. Like, you might have a scholarly warlock who has made a pact with whatever being to help them learn more about the world and, or history or ancient secrets, something like that. But they're not necessarily studying magic itself. Wizards, that's what they do. I'm sure definitely study other stuff if you're playing a wizard and you want to be this very scholarly character, but... You don't have to. They, they study the magic itself. You don't have to limit yourself to that, but that's obviously a big part of the identity of the class is that they study magic itself, how it works. They experiment with it. And wizards... So a wizard is... It doesn't have to be that scholarly character, though. I just, you know, I know, I just said that it's really a big part of it, but um, in the player's handbook, there's where is it in Xanathar's? No, it's in the it's in Xanathar's guide. In Xanathar's guide, there's this little story told through pictures about a girl who steals a spell book and becomes a wizard. She steals a spell book, and she studies the spells in it and learns how to wield them and becomes. And is a wizard. Um, so your character doesn't have to have the background of I was an apprentice to a wizard and I studied hard under them, under their harsh tutelage, and so now I'm a, an, an adventuring wizard. You can be someone who just happened upon a spell book, stole it or something. And that, that's a great way to experiment with backgrounds. Um, in the player's handbook, they have quick builds or everything that have... Every class has a quick build with a uh, recommended um, background that you pick. Uh, and for wizard, it recommends sage. But you can do any background with anything. And I definitely want to experiment with that non-sage wizard background. You know, wizards that come from different paths through life. But end up with a spell book, and now they're spellcasters. So wizard has nine archetypes, so let's get digging into that. Um, first off, their general abilities. At first level, you know, you get your spell book, you get the ability to cast spells. Um, 
you Yeah, with ritual casting, you can cast a spell that's in your spell book, and you don't have to have it prepared, and you can cast it as a ritual. So that's exactly what I was talking about. You know, you can cast spells that aren't prepared for the day using that. Um, each time you gain a wizard level, you add two wizard spells to your spell book for free. And then you can, you know, obviously copy down more. Also, first level, you gain Arcane Recovery. Which, when you finish a short rest once per day, you can choose one. Ex you can choose some expended spell slots to recover. Um, the spells have a combined level that is equal to or less than your half your wizard level, and they can't be higher than six level slots. So, right off the bat, the wizard can recover their spell slots a little more reliably than. Um, the other casters, except for, you know, Warlock, who just recovers everything after a short rest. <laughs> uh, at second level, you pick your Arcane Tradition, which is your archetype. At 18th level, you gain Spell Mastery, which lets you choose a first level spell and a second level spell that are in your spell book. And you can cast them as first or second level spells without expending a spell slot. Um, you can spend eight hours to study to exchange spells for different ones of the same level. And at 20th level, you get signature spells. You choose two power you choose two third level spells and they you always have them prepared. They don't count against your number of spells prepared and you can cast them once per long rest or once per short rest without expending a spell slot. Um so this is really the the signature spells are really how you kind of define your character once you get to 20th level. Like, these are my spells. And even before you get to 20th level, you probably have a couple signature spells that you are always preparing. So, we'll get into the archetypes. The Abjuration, um, it is magic that blocks, banishes, and protects. So, Abjurers are... They exercise spirits they guard locations against spying uh, they close portals to other planes and every single wizard archetype except for war magic gets a savant feature at second level when they pick it and you so you are a savant at that school and what this feature does is it halves the cost of copying spells of that school into your spell book. So for an abjurer, abjuration spells only require 25 gold and one hour rather than two hours and 50. At second level, you also get an arcane ward, which when you cast an abjuration spell first level or higher, you simultaneously create a magical ward, which... The ward has hit points equal to twice your wizard level plus your intelligent modifier, and whenever you take damage, instead the ward takes it. Um, if something overkills the ward, then you start taking that damage. You take the leftover damage. Uh, when it has zero hit points, it remains but can absorb damage, and you can cast abjuration spells to give hit points to that ward again. 
Um, you can't create it again until after you finish a long rest, but it pretty much just exists. There's no time limit on it. It, it goes away once you... Uh, yeah, the spell, it lasts until you finish a long rest. So as soon as you cast an Abjuration spell, you then have a ward until your next rest. At 6th level, you can use your ward to absorb damage that is taken by another creature within um, 30 feet of you. At 10th level, you can whenever you cast a spell that requires you to make an ability check as part of casting the spell, like Counterspell or Dispel Magic, you can add your proficiency bonus to that check. And at 14th level, you have advantage on saving throws against spells, and you have resistance to damage from spells. So the abjuration is all about protection. This is the, I don't want to be that squishy wizard that just dies all the time. <laughs> uh, the school of conjuration, uh, that is magic that produces objects and creatures of thin air. Conjurers summon monsters to fight alongside them, or creatures rather, maybe monsters, but creatures to fight alongside them. And summon objects that need they need. At second level, you can conjure an inanimate, an, an inanimate object in your hand or on the ground within ten feet of you. It can't be larger than three feet on a side and weigh no more than ten pounds. It has to be a non-magical object that you have seen. It disappears after an hour. That's pretty cool, I guess. <laughs> uh, at sixth level, you get benign transposition, which lets you teleport up to thirty feet to an occupied space. Or you can choose a space within range that's occupied by a smaller medium creature, and if it's willing, you can swap places. So if a monster, say something, rushes past one of your your fighter and to attack you, you can, on your turn, swap places with your fighter. Uh, Once you use this feature, you can't use it again until you finish a long rest, or you cast a conjuration spell. So it's pretty easy to get this ability back. At 10th level, while you're concentrating on a concentration spell, your concentration can't... Or, or, sorry, a conjuration spell, your concentration can't be broken from taking damage. And at 14th level, any creatures that you summon have 30 extra hit points. Which is pretty good. They're temporary hit points, though, so they can't be healed back, I believe. That's how temporary hit points work. <laughs> uh, the School of Divination... Divination is, uh, they seek understanding of the past, present, and future. Your spells pierce the part the veils of space, time, and consciousness so you can see clearly. You master spells of discernment, remote viewing, supernatural knowledge, and foresight. So you get portent at second level. This lets you, when you finish a long rest, you roll two d20s and record the numbers, and you can replace a roll of a d20 for an attack roll, saving throw, or an ability check with one of those numbers. You choose to do so before the roll, and you can only do this once per turn. And you can only use each one once. And when you finish a long rest, you lose ones you haven't used. So basically, when you finish a long rest, you roll two d20s, and you have numbers that you can throw in there. If something attacks you and you're like, oh, I think that's going to hit me really hard if it hits, I will. Or no, if you're going to attack and you're like, I really need this to hit and I rolled a 19 on one of my important rolls, then I will do that. 
Um, you can also do it for creatures you can see. So if you roll a 1 on one of your portent rolls and a creature attacks you, you can say, uh, I'm going to use my portent to give it a 1 so it misses. At 6th level, you uh, when you cast a divination spell of 2nd level or higher, you regain an expended spell slot. This slot you regain must be of a low level lower than the spell you cast and can't be higher than 5th level. So wizards, just to kind of nail in this point, are very, very good at casting spells. And their spell slots are almost a joke because they can recover them so easily. Depending on your choices, I guess. At 10th level, you get the third eye, which lets you... Um, when you take a rest... No, when you... You can use your action to increase your powers of perception. And that power lasts until you're incapacitated or take a short or long rest, and you can't use it again to take a rest. You can choose to give yourself dark vision. You can choose to give yourself ethereal sight, which lets you see into the ethereal plane, ethereal plane within 60 feet of you. You can, get, you can do greater comprehension, which lets you read any language, or you can choose see invisibility. But uh, that only goes out 10 feet. At 14th level, you get greater portent, which adds a d20 to your portent die. So you have three instead of two. Next, we have the School of Enchantment, which is the ability to magically entrance and beguile other people and monsters. Some enchanters are peacemakers. Others are tyrants. Most fall somewhere in between. <laughs> so with the, enchantment, with the enchanter, you are casting charm. A lot. <laughs> uh, at second level, you get hypnotic gaze. I don't know why I said it that way. Hypnotic gaze. Hypnotic. Um, you can enthrall creatures with your gauge. You choose a, with your gauge with your gaze. You choose a creature within five feet of you that you can see and can see you, and you force it to make a wisdom saving throw against your wizard spell slave DC. And if it fails, it's charmed by you. The turn creature's speed drops to zero, and it's incapacitated and visibly dazed. You can use your action to, ex to keep this effect going. The effect ends until if you move more than five feet away from it, if it can't see you or hear you, or it takes damage. So basically what the, the hypnotic gaze lets you do is you sacrifice your wizard being able to do very much and instead lock down a creature. So if you're fighting a group of creatures and you're like, this one's going to be a problem, let's lock it down. You can have the, the wizard can go over there and hypnotic gaze it and assuming it fails that initial wisdom saving throw, you give up your wizard for uh, locking down this creature. At 6th level, you get Instinctive Charm, which you can, if a creature makes an attack roll against you, you can use Reaction to divert it to... Uh, the attacker makes a... You can divert the attack. The attacker makes a Wisdom saving throw on a failed save. It must target the creature that's closest to it, not including you or itself. And if you succeed, you can't use it again until you finish a long rest. If you fail, or if the creature fails, rather, you can try again before you take a rest. 
Creatures that can't be charmed are immune to this effect. At 10th level, you get split enchantment, which when you cast a enchantment spell first level or higher that targets only one creature, you can also target a second. And at 14th level, you get alter memories, which when you use your spell, your an enchantment spell, to charm a, any number of creatures, you can basically um, make it so the creature does not know that it was charmed. You can make it forget what it did while it was charmed as well. Uh, next we have the School of Evocation, which is probably what I would take the first time I play Wizard, because the Evocation Wizard is all about using... Um, elemental attacks basically you're casting spells that deal damage this is your fireball wizard <laughs> uh, at second level you get sculpt spells which lets you um choose a number of creatures equal to one plus the spells level and those creatures automatically succeed on saving throws against the spell so if you cast fireball or I don't, maybe not fireball fireball might not have a saving throw fireball might just be a uh, Everything in an area takes damage. But let, let's say you cast Shatter or Thunder Wave. All the creatures within range of Thunder Wave, have to, including allies, have to make a saving throw or take damage. Um, Thunder Wave is a successful saving throw. You take half damage. Failed saving throw, you take full damage and get pushed back. And... What Sculpt Spells does is you choose creatures that are within range of Thunder Wave, and those creatures take no damage. They automatically succeed their saving throws, and if they would take half damage on a fail, they take none instead. So you can safely use those kinds of spells without having to worry about having allies nearby, to an extent. If you're playing a big game with, like, six people, and all of them but you are within range of Thunder Wave, which is, I believe, a first-level spell... Only two of them get to be immune. At 6th level, you get Potent Cantrip, which... If a creature makes a saving throw... To avoid damage from a cantrip, instead they take half damage instead of no damage. So some spells are like that. Some spells are, rather than half damage on a successful saving throw, are no damage on a successful saving throw. And potent cantrip turns your cantrips that deal damage into half damage on a successful saving throw, basically. At 10th level, you add your intelligence modifier to one die of damage from any wizard evocation spell you cast... And at 14th level, you get Over Channel, which lets you, when you cast a spell, 1st through 5th level, that deals damage. It doesn't have to be no evocation spell. You automatically deal maximum damage. Every time you use this after the first, you take, you take 2d12 necrotic damage, and then you add 1d12 necrotic damage each time after that. So a little high risk, but whatever. <laughs> The first time you do it, you take no damage. So you can just be like, I'm going to max damage out this spell. Uh, next we have the School of Illusion, which is 
Illusions, I'm not going to. <laughs> it's illusions, you cast illusion spells. Um, at second level, you get, you learn the minor illusion cantrip. If you already know this cantrip, you can learn a different wizard cantrip of your choice. It doesn't count against your number of cantrips known. And when you cast minor, minor illusion, you can create both a sound and an image with a single casting of the spell. At sixth level, your illusion spells that have a... When you cast a spell that has a duration of one minute or longer, you can use your action to change it, provided that you can see the illusion. So you can... If you make an illusion of a deer, you can then change the deer to a wolf or something like that. At tenth level, you can create an illusory... Illusory... Duplicate of yourself... And as an instant, almost instinctual reaction to danger. When a creature makes an attack roll against you, you can use your reaction to put your duplicate between you and the attacker. The attack automatically misses. You can do that once per short rest. Uh, at 14th level, you get Illusory Reality, which when you cast an illusion spell first level or higher, you can choose an inanimate non-magical object that's part of the illusion and make it real. So let's say... The example they give is you create an illusion of a bridge over a chasm, you cro- you make it real long enough for you and your allies to cross the chasm, and then you make it not real anymore. Uh, the object can't deal damage or otherwise directly harm anyone. Um, I would say, I would rule as a dungeon master that if you do that with the bridge and you make the illusion no longer real while enemies are crossing it, that doesn't count as directly harming, so the bridge didn't hurt them. It just stopped existing, so they fell. <laughs> I would say that that is legit. Next, we have the school of necromancy, which is raising the dead, manipulating the energy that animates all living things. At second level, you get grim harvest, which once per turn, when you kill one or more creatures with a first level or spell, first level or higher spell. You regain hit points equal to twice the spell's level, or three times its level if it's a necromancy spell. You don't gain this from killing constructs and undead. At sixth level, you add animate dead if it's not already there to your spellbook. And when you cast it, you can cast you can target an additional corpse or pile of bones. The hit point maximum is increased by an amount equal to your wizard level, and it adds your proficiency bonus to its weapon damage rolls. At 10th level, you have resistance to necrotic damage, and your hit point maximum can't be reduced. There aren't a lot of things that reduce hit point maximum, but it is absolutely a scary effect to have put on you. So that's a nice ability to have. At 14th level, you can use magic to bring undead under your control with command undead, even those created by other wizards. As an action, you can choose one undead creature within 60 feet of you. It makes a charisma saving throw against your wizard spell slave save DC. And if it succeeds, you can't do it to that particular undead again. If it fails, it becomes under your control. Um, if it has an intelligence of 8 or higher, it has advantage on the saving throw. If it has an, a, an intelligence of 12 or higher, it can repeat the saving throws at the end of every hour until it succeeds and breaks free. Next, we have the School of Transmutation, which is the last one in the Player's Handbook. Uh, transmutation is modifying energy and matter. 
It's the world is mutable, and you're an agent of change. Uh, you get minor alchemy at second level, which lets you temporarily alter the physical properties of a non-magical object, changing it from one substance to another. Um, and for each 10 minutes you do this, you can change one foot of material after an hour, or you lose your concentration, it reverts to a traditional substance. At 6th level, you can create a sorcerer's stone. Oh, sorry, a philosopher's stone. No, sorry, a transmuter's stone. <laughs> um, you can give. You can spend 8 hours creating it. It stores transmutation magic. You can benefit from yourself or give it to a creature. You only have one at a time. Um, and you can give it as long as it is on a creature's or your possession. You choose a benefit. It, it, it can give dark vision. It can give increased speed, proficiency in constitution saving throws, or resistance to acid, cold, fire, lightning, or thunder. Your choice when you choose the benefit. Every time you cast a transmutation spell for level or higher, you can change the effect of the stone. If you create a new one, the previous one ceases to function. At 10th level, you can you add the polymorph spell to your spellbook if it's not already there. When you cast it, you can cast it without expending a spell slot. And when you do so, however, you can only do a yourself and you can only transform into a beast whose tra whose challenge rating is one or lower uh, you can cast it this way once for short rest you can still cast it normally afterwards though and then at 14th level you get master transmuter which lets you um, use your action to destroy your transmuter stone for a powerful effect you can transmute one non-magical object no larger than a five-foot cube into another non-magical object. And you spend ten minutes handling it to transform it. You can... You have uh, Panacea. Panacea. You remove all curses, diseases, and poisons affecting a creature that you touch with the stone. It also regains all of its hit points. You can cast the Raise Dead spell on a creature you touch with the Transmuter Stone without expending a spell slot or need to have the spell in your spell book. And then we have Restore Youth, which you touch the Transmuter Stone to a willing creature. Its apparent age is reduced by 3d10 years to a minimum of 13, but does not extend its lifespan. Uh, so basically, you're going to have that on your back, in your back pocket for mostly Panacea and Restore Life. <laughs> In Xanathar's Guide, we get War Magic. Now, War Magic does not get the Savant feature. So it does not have the ability to learn spells at a reduced cost of time and money. Instead, you get some other neat features. You get Arcane Deflection. When you're hit by an attack or fail a saving throw, you can use Reaction to gain a plus 2 AC or a plus 4 bonus to that saving throw. And if you do this, you can't cast spells other than Cantraps until the end of your next turn. You also get Tactical Wit at second level, which you give yourself a bonus to your initiative rolls equal to your intelligence modifier. Which should be high, because you're a wizard. At sixth level, you can store magical energy with Power Surge. 
you can store a maximum number of power surges equal to your intelligence modifier. Whenever you finish a long rest, your number of power surges resets to one. Whenever you successfully end a spell with dispel magic or counter spell, you gain a power surge. So you always start with one, but then you can gain more. Once per turn, when you deal damage to a creature, with or object. Oh, sorry, I'm misreading it. When you deal damage to a creature or object with a wizard spell, you can spend one of your power surges to deal extra force damage equal to half your wizard level. At 10th level, you gain durable magic, which while you maintain concentration on a spell, you have plus 2 AC and or plus 2 to your AC and all saving throws. And then at 14th level, you get Arcane Shroud, which lets you, when you use your Arcane Deflection feature, you can then deal force damage to up to three creatures within 60 feet of you equal to half your wizard level. So when you deflect that magic, you then send magical energy back. So the war magic is very much a DPS wizard and get better at concentrating on spells and doing things like that during a fight. So that's the wizard, the last of the classes. Um, I'll probably get around to alchemist at some point. Or Artificer. I don't remember if it's Alchemist or Artificer is the class, and one of them is the subclass, but um, that's in the Eberron book that's coming out, I believe. And I would really like to get my hands on it, and if I ever, if and when I do get my hands on the Eberron book, I'll probably do a few episodes on that and talk about that class there. Um, So, yeah, that's the Wizard. The Wizard is a really cool caster. It's just the the ultimate spellcaster. Sorry, every other spellcaster, but the wizard is just better at it than you are. (laughs) Um, I like wizards a lot more after reading for this episode than I thought I would, or used to, for that matter. Um, The wizard is just a—it's just a cool character. And a lot of time, I feel like the wizard gets bogged down in some of the stereotypes about the kind of character a wizard is. You know, they're—they're antisocial, they're eccentric, they're weird, and playing those characters. I don't want to tell you not to because they're fun. <laughs> it's a fun character to play. This eccentric, weird, just strange person who is also a kick-ass spellcaster. Um, but experimenting with that, playing wizards that are just students of magic that aren't necessarily these weird, somewhat crazy people is absolutely doable too. So... That's it for the classes. Next week we'll start getting into some more, you know, theories of gameplay and just ideas and more more of the uh what's the, what am I trying to say? More of the brainstorming ways to come up with memorable play experiences. That's really what I want to do with this podcast is just really brainstorm those memorable experiences and how to make your games not better, but just kind of more more memorable, more fun for you and your players. Because it, the D&D isn't for the players and it's not for the Dungeon Masters. It's for both of those groups to come together and have a good time. And so next week we'll start delving into some of that stuff. I haven't exactly decided what exactly thing I want to delve into next week, but I will put something on Twitter and Facebook in the coming week ahead of time when I've 
narrowed down what I want to talk about next week. So that's all for this week, and we'll see you next week. Keep on delving.